Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. Time now to take a look at headlines out of the United States. Last month, you'll remember, U.S. President Joe Biden said China-U.S. relationships would thaw very soon. And then the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin tried but failed to secure a meeting with his Chinese counterpart at the recent Shangri-La Security Forum that happened here in Singapore. Yep. So most recently, uh, we had uh, last week, or this week rather, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken making a visit to Beijing uh, after a trip planned for February was derailed by the Chinese balloon incident. (laughs) Yep, we, we remember all that. Now, could this be a move that puts now bilateral relations on better footing after months of acrimony? It's about time, right? Yep, uh, that and other headlines. Let's get in touch with uh, Pushan Dut, who is Professor of Economics at INSEAD on the line with us. Professor, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. I suppose let's start off with this visit uh, from U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken sitting down with uh, China's top diplomat on the final day of this high-stakes visit to Beijing. As far as expectations on this relationship thawing, what are your thoughts on it? I think we should all be cautiously optimistic. The U.S. and China have been caught in this destructive cycle of hostility and mistrust, and the relationship has deteriorated sharply. So any attempt at dialogue and cooperation should be welcomed, I think, unambiguously. Now, uh, at the same time, we should be realistic because the fundamentals have not changed. There are deep differences on Taiwan, on tariffs, on semiconductors, technology transfers. So the way I think about it is that we are entering into like Cold War 2.0. But just like in the previous Cold War, lines of communication and dialogue were kept open that sort of reduced the risk of miscalculation crisis. So I'm happy to see that, you know, uh, U.S. and China are both trying to do the same, establishing working groups, more commercial flights, exchange of people. So overall, it's more about damage control and the restoration of balance and common sense. Uh, Professor, on a practical note, of course, it is good for both uh, superpowers to to start talking and start solving things the way they used to be. But realistically, we're looking at another election year coming up in the United States and American politicians will need to look tough on China once again. So with all that rhetoric being said, uh, what is your expectation on that front? So I hope that the meetings will help calm down tensions, right? But, you know, as you pointed out there, I think there are two things which are hovering, which makes things especially tricky. The first is the one you mentioned, which is the 2024 election season the U.S. will start. First, it will distract President Biden as he pivots towards campaigning. And all the candidates from both parties, I foresee them taking a very aggressive stance against China and competing with each other. That's the only thing which unites the two parties. But even from China's perspective, I think the thing that is distracting for them is the fact that growth rates seem to be slowing down pretty rapidly in China. So you were just talking about that the Chinese are contemplating expansionary fiscal and monetary policies. They're worried about the property sector, the rise in youth unemployment restrictions on technology transfers. Now, this can go either way. The Chinese might feel reluctant to get into a conflict and, you know, take advantage of the trade system again as growth falters. Or, you know, both in the U.S. and China, you know, it's it's easy to distract people's attention by, you know, pointing out to, to the other, to the outsider. And that, of course, raises the risk of a conflict. Mm, talking about uh, conflicts and, and relationships, uh, India doesn't have the best uh, relationship with China. And their Prime Minister Narendra Modi is set to visit the U.S. this week at the invitation of President Joe Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden. What's uh, the agenda of this meeting, Professor? 
So I think the big agenda, of course, will be technology and defense. So we should expect a number of agreements, even though everyone's being very quiet about it, on semiconductor chips and, uh, you know, defense cooperation. Again, these things are inextricably linked to all these geopolitical issues that we were just discussing, right? From India's perspective, the Ukraine conflict has had a huge negative impact because Russia is now prioritizing supply Russian forces in Ukraine and Russia is the biggest defense supplier to the U.S. So India's main fighter aircraft, basically a big part of it is not no longer in operation because they lack spare parts. So that's what uh, India is looking for, you know, manufacturing of uh, jet engines, which it plans to use in its own combat aircraft. You know, the U.S. is also attracted by it because it accounts for only about 10% of defense imports or by India, Russia has a 50% share. So they might take, uh, you know, so cooperation exists on that dimension as well. The other big thing, of course, is semiconductors. So the U.S. Secretary of Commerce and the Indian Commerce Minister, they signed a bilateral semiconductor supply chain partnership. Again, this is part of the move to diversify production and supply chains away from China, Taiwan, and even South Korea. So there are other areas of cooperation. And if you just go through them, like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, space exploration, these are basically the industries where U.S. is competing head-on with China. So where does India lie in, in the whole scheme of things, though, with this one? Because earlier, was it last year when uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi said India will take the side of its own interest when it comes mm-hmm. to world affairs, right? But realistically, though, should it be siding with the United States, with Russia, with China? How, do, how does it work for India? So the India used to be part of this non-aligned movement during the Cold War. So mm-hmm. it would sort of straddle the middle ground between uh, the Soviet Union and U.S. But, uh, you know, de facto, it was much closer to the Soviet Union. So it could always yeah. count on the support of the Soviet Union from the UN Security Council. It would have lots of defense ties with it, whereas the U.S. was much closer to India's rival, which was Pakistan, you know, in terms of defense cooperation. Now, a couple of things have changed. The big thing which changed was that the U.S.'s pivot towards Asia and uh, the U.S. has actually exited Afghanistan, so Pakistan is less important in its strategic calculation. Uh, The second thing is that uh, the U.S. is trying to build this ring of alliances around China, and uh, India is going to be part of this because India has also gone to war with China in 1965 and they've had lots of border clashes. So therefore, I expect even though there are points of contention in terms of the Indian government, you know, doing some form of democratic backsliding, cracking down on the press, etc. But I think this will all be raised in private and in public, they will, you know, push for them being natural partners. Uh, Professor, let's turn our attention to something Tim brought up earlier, the U.S. presidential race. Uh, So over the weekend, we saw President Joe Biden making his 2024 re-election pitch to union members in Philadelphia. uh, Philadelphia, I beg your pardon. Let's talk a little bit about your overarching thoughts on his rally. What are some of the things the president spotlighted on? Well, I think there were two big messages that he was trying to send through this rally. Uh, The first sort of abstract message was that he's the president of all of America and not just of, like, the blue America. Mm. The second big message he was trying to send was that, you know, governments can work because the Republican Party is very cynical about governments, starting it with Reagan and even earlier. So he's trying to show that government can work by creating jobs, building infrastructure, combating climate change, etc., Now, if I think about it, the U.S. went through, like many of us, went through a once-in-a-century shock from COVID. 
the, you know, they did not perform very well in COVID, but economically things are, the U.S. economy is in good shape. Inflation is coming down, consumer spending held up, unemployment at 3.7% is at its lowest in a long time, and even income inequality is actually declining. So that's the thing that Biden is going to push, that, you know, that government can work, that he has had a lot of bipartisan legislation. Of course, a lot of us, us in the press and even on Twitter, we would rather th- talk about cultural issues like Mm. banning books in classroom, etc. So, but Biden, I think his slogan should be boring is good. And in fact, I'm very thankful for that because I don't wake up anymore, open Twitter and see what fresh <laughs> nonsense Donald Trump has been up to <laughs> that day. But of course, he's not going to keep quiet as well. So we're no, gonna... he's back. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to keep a close watch on that and look for your analysis again in the coming weeks as the election season begins in the United States. Uh, Professor, thank you very much for joining us uh, this Monday. Professor Pushandad, Professor of Economics from INSEAD. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.